Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today Hamilton is opening its third testing center in the city, but this one's a bit of a different one. It's a drive-through center. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson will join us to discuss that. Also, Premier Doug Ford's on the program today to talk about Ontario's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And the Minister of Public Services and Procurement will join us to talk about the federal government's response to the pandemic and the supplies of masks and hand sanitizers that are needed. And Rotary Club is in the news, too, making a fantastic donation, $6,000 worth of PPEs and masks to frontline workers. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. On the local front, uh, some interesting news and some good news, as a matter of fact, when it comes to testing, which we've always said is one of the key elements to battling COVID-19. Uh, Hamilton uh, will now see a, uh, a third uh, testing site, and this one will be a drive-through. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Uh, Dr. Richardson, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be on, as always. Well, uh, to give us the updates and to give us some sort of a sense as to what's going on here, as you've told us right from the outset, uh, the, the two things that we really need to concentrate on to try to, to bend this curve is, uh, well, first of all, uh, the physical dis- distancing that we've been trying to, to get across, and I think most people are starting to understand that and comply with that. But the other is testing, and there's always been a concern about the amount of testing that's being done. Uh, so good news, actually, that we have a third site. Talk to us a little bit about what's going to be happening later on this morning, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. So later on this morning, we will be opening up our third assessment center, and this one is a drive-through assessment center. So these things have been tried elsewhere. People may have seen uh, pictures from uh, South Korea was where they first started it, um, but there have been others that have gotten up and running in Ontario. It's a great idea because it means that people do not have to leave their cars. They can stay in their cars, and somebody comes up to them. They're completely um, got what we call personal protective equipment or PPE on, which means they've got masks and face shields and gloves and gowns and all of the things that need to be there to make sure that there isn't any transmission of, of COVID-19. And so they will go up to their car, they'll um, talk with them, do an assessment and log all their information. And if they uh, feel that they need to be tested, they meet the criteria to be tested, then they will go ahead and do the swab. So all from the comfort and warmth of your car, um, it does mean, of course, that, you know, you do have to meet the criteria. Not everybody who visits uh, will get tested. It's not quite like a Tim Hortons drive-through, but it's close. And um, well, the, the, lineups will, the lineups will be just as long, I'm sure. <laughs> they may well be. So the, the process to get to the testing is the same as always. They can call their family physician or they can call us um, on, at our uh, hotline number, and we will book them in. We're still going to do them as books because then people don't need to wait as long. Um, we'll still book them in and then they will drive in right now. It's going to be right inside the arena and they're going to drive in, go through the process and, and then drive on out and on with their days. So, um, it's really good news for those that don't have a car. Cause of course not everybody does. The other two assessment centers are still running in the East and West end. So they can go to those as well. Same process. Give us a call, go through the, your family doc and we'll book you in. Are we casting the net wide enough, Doctor? I, I know, you know, initially we were trying to look at frontline workers and those that are going to be uh, in the firing line, so to speak. Uh, and now we've, we've tried to extend that just a little bit. There are some people, I'm sure you've heard this, uh, that simply said, look at anybody who wants to get tested should get tested. Is that even practical? Yeah, that's that would be our our ideal, is anybody yeah. who, um, you know, has any symptoms, still asymptomatic testing, you know, is, is something that they're looking at. They're doing uh, groups of people to see, 
you know, how extensive is that? What role does it play in terms of the outbreak? We're still, you know, with a new new bug like this, we don't know everything about it. And so we're trying to concentrate the resources on where we think they can do the most good. So right now, the focus is um, through these sort of settings is symptomatic people. The list of people to be tested at this point is pretty um, pretty extensive. You know, healthcare workers, frontline uh, first responders, anybody who's an essential service provider, we will test. So people from our transit system, for example, um, you know, people who are working in grocery stores who are symptomatic, uh, family members of healthcare workers who are, or other frontline workers who are symptomatic. So the, the list is quite long. So that's, that's really good news. Um, essentially, it's anybody who's still out and about today. I mean, if you're home and you're not going to see anybody, you're not going to get COVID-19. So there's uh, not so much a need. And the one thing I would mention, though, around testing is we do see quite a few people for whom they've been asked by their business to, to get a guarantee that they're negative and they have no symptoms. And so if somebody's symptomatic, absolutely come, you know, give us a call. We'll go through the process about uh, booking you in, seeing if it's the right thing um, that you need to do. But if they're asymptomatic, there's no reason why somebody needs to get a test to get cleared to go back to work um, at all. So that that is one thing we would like to not come through our lines because it, it's taking up spots that other people could use. Well, that's along the theme of what you've told us, so that when this whole thing started uh, some weeks ago now, is that this is a time to be concerned, but not a time to panic. Uh, and you're absolutely right, unless, you know, you actually touch something or whatever. If you're staying home, if you're self-isolated, uh, the chances of contracting the virus are pretty slim, wouldn't they be? Absolutely. You know, in that, if there's not somebody going in and out of your home or, you know, there's the, the times when you are out and about with grocery shopping at pharmacies, there's a possibility. We are, of course, recommending that people wear masks just in case um, they are incubating the virus and are, are asymptomatic still before they get sick. But that should further de- decrease the spread as well. There's a, not a lot of math, or myth rather, and, and some fact, a, a lot of fact that's going on here too, but it's it's very confusing to people. I saw a story from the UK today that suggested that this thing actually might have started last September uh, and it just wasn't identified as, as, well, as we call it now, COVID-19. I, I don't know whether there's any legitimacy to that or not, but there is a possibility, I, I believe, that you've told us that uh, some of us may have actually had this virus and not even realized it, not just asymptomatic, but you feel lousy for a couple of days and then you get over it. That, that may have been COVID. We just don't know at this stage. Well, the, we're still figuring it all out. This does. We, we are calling this a novel virus, and we'll get to understand it more and more so. There's, there's so many coronaviruses already that are out there that cause colds, uh, but this one does seem to be distinct from those. And then the question is, it, it seems to have come from the, uh, you know, the animal kingdom. It's uh, jumped over to the humans, and has it ever done that before? It doesn't seem so. Uh, certainly seemed to do so in and around end of November, beginning of December. Might have started a little bit before that. It, you know, those are the things we don't quite know. They've, they've got some new blood tests that they have developed at the National uh, Microbiology Lab out, out west, and uh, they've been refining them um, across the country. And so what will happen soon is we'll do something called a sero survey. And so what that means is They'll do um, tests usually on blood samples that are correct, collected for other purposes already. So um, they use those to look at how many people have been infected that we, we didn't know about and how, how extensive was it. We did that with West Nile virus when it first came to Ontario and Canada. And we found, you know, really about 90% of people didn't know that they had had it. It was completely um, 
um, asymptomatic, and only about 5 to 10% of people did. And so we'll see with COVID-19, once we have all those tests developed and can do it, we'll, we'll get a much better picture, and the science will continue to evolve. The end game here really is it, it, the vaccine, isn't it? I mean, that's what that's what we're waiting for. We're trying to just do everything we can from a defensive standpoint here uh, until that vaccine is available, and that's that's still some time away. Yeah, generally, you know, eighteen to twenty-four months to develop a vaccine at at the least, and that's that's once you know you can develop a specific vaccine for this. Um, there's they're certainly working at it. We've got our colleagues at McMaster who are working away on it. And that would be the ideal is we have a vaccine for this and uh, and that can immunize all those who who didn't get it through the this this particular wave. But we'll continue be continuing to look at, you know, how do we open up um, from here? You know, where do we go? Um, do we start to have another wave? If we do that, we're all watching China and their experience with it because they're, of course, some of the first ones to do this. Uh, and then, you know, while we're waiting, um, you know, how much do we have to, what I call sort of throttle, up, throttle uh, down with the, uh, the public health measures and then open things up um, as we go. So it's going to be an, an interesting process, perhaps a bit of a frustrating process for some as we go forward. But everybody is pouring their hearts into looking at this, what can possibly happen and, and very much aware of the need that to, you know, start reopening uh, business, to start reopening um, you know, other ways for us all to get around, do our daily business. Um, but it's not just, we're just not quite there yet. And we're getting impatient. I mean, I can tell from the response I'm getting from listeners over the last little while. And, and maybe that I even hate to use the phrase good news, but some encouraging news that we got through some of the statistics. And you talked about the number of days that, uh, that the virus doubles and that, that's been extended now. And that's, that's a good sign. Uh, and we've seen a decrease in some areas now where they seem to be flattening that curve. But a lot of folks are thinking, okay, we don't need to do anything. I, I think maybe the, one of the best analogies I saw the other day, doctor, is uh, somebody said, yeah, the parachute has slowed my descent. I guess I don't need it anymore. I, I can take it <laughs> off. Uh, we, we, can't, we can't get overconfident here. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. You know, the, and this is something that we classically see in public health is when something's really working and, and things are reduced or stop happening, people think they don't need to do it. We see this with vaccination all the time, right? Where, well, we don't have any measles. We don't have any uh, pertussis or whatever it is that we're, we're vaccinating against. So why do we need to continue to do this? Well, you know, if you, you look at the United Kingdom, you know, several years ago when they decided to, they didn't have confidence in their vaccines and backed off, well, there you go, measles was right back, so many people ill and all of those sorts of things. So, I think we have to remember that the numbers are down because of all the good work people are doing in doing these physical distancing measures, working from home, um, you know, only going out to the grocery store when needed, all of those different things that people are doing, covering their coughs. That's what's making the difference. So we can't let up yet. Um, and then when we do, it's going to be in a very thoughtful way to, to, to see how much immunity has been built up through this process. Um, and uh, what it's going to mean for us in terms of further cases. We don't even know that for sure, do we, that if you've had this, that you build up antibodies. That I know there's a pattern where, with other viruses where that has happened, but we're not at that stage where we can say it, that, that for sure at this stage, that, from the information I'm reading anyway. We know that at least it, people will at least have, are developing an immune response to, and that's what's helping them get over the virus. Mm-hmm. The question is how long does it last? And so for some things, 
it's a lifetime. For other things, it wanes over time. And so that's all part of what those zero surveys will help us to do as well is understand in those who have been sick, how long do they continue to um, to maintain those antibodies as they go forward and does it prevent them from getting sick again? So all this, that science is yet to come. I, I still remember as a little kid going back a few years, obviously getting the polio vaccine, uh, which eradicated that. And, of course, there's the some anti-vac movements that have gone on right now. And as you recall, there a couple of years ago, there's actually kind of a resurgence of polio in some parts of the world, which tells you if, if you let your guard down, it's going to happen. Uh, and, and that's, I, I think, a, a strong argument for the vaccination element of this. But we, we're not there yet. I heard the story yesterday, but uh, I guess it's at Waterloo right now. They're developing, uh, they're trying to anyway, a, a vaccine uh, through a nasal spray. Uh, but there's there's a protocol that has to be followed before you can just say, okay, we've got it. This is going to be it. I mean, there has to be testing done and, and a number of different steps you have to go through uh, to make sure that this is going to be effective. Yeah, that's right. Those are important steps. And, you know, everybody will look to see how we can move those through those as rapidly as we can. But we need to move through them. You know, this happens with every single vaccine. I happen to be uh, of the right age that the first measles vaccine that they brought out they used extensively and it turned out you ended up getting something called atypical measles instead of getting you know preventing measles at all and so I got revaccinated again as a child with the newer vaccine that worked even better so you know it's a good example you know fortunately not uh, that wasn't a case where there was a lot of harm caused by the vaccine but we absolutely want to make sure that when we develop vaccines that they are safe and they're effective and so we need to be patient while they go through that process. There's a, a lesson to be learned in history. I, I know the reference point a lot of us are using, Doctor, is the Spanish flu that happened just around the beginning, early part of the 20th century, and uh, which coincided, by the way, with the end of World War One. And there was supposed to be, I don't know if they call it physical distancing back in those days, but I mean, the people were supposed to be isolated. And I guess they got to the point where a lot of people have now, where they say, no, I've had enough of this, uh, it's is over. The second wave hit, and actually more people died in the second wave than they did in the first uh, because of that, and, and we've got to learn from that. And there's a push right now politically and in some other areas right now to, to kind of figure, okay, the worst is over. Uh, I, I don't think we're at that point, are we? I, no, we're not at that point yet. Um, you know, And this is where we'll need to be carefully and thoughtfully managed in terms of how we open back things and how we look at what are what's happening as a result of that we know on the other side that there are businesses that are hurting that are struggling um, you know families who are lost income because of this and so there's absolutely these measures are not without um, impact in and of themselves they have unintended consequences on the other side and so we need to be balancing those those risks balancing those challenges but we're not at the stage of just opening everything back up. And when we do do it, it'll be careful. It'll be, um, you know, closely monitored in terms of impacts. And this is where our ongoing piece about testing, 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 and the work that we do with people to understand the cases, who are they in contact with, that people be isolated, um, you know, during the time that they're, they're possibly incubating the virus. Those will continue to be very important parts of the the control and i think that's the piece for those that are they're considering getting tested they may be saying you know what but if i get tested and i'm positive i have to stay home for two weeks and that's where we really you know they're doing it for us people who do that the contacts who do it 
the cases who do it, they're doing it for the rest of us so that we don't uh, get sick, so that the spread doesn't continue. So we need to work very hard to support people, you know, only keep them at home as long as we need them to, um, and support people who are doing that really for the rest of us. All right, the drive through clinic starts today. Please don't just show up, though. As, as you said, the protocol is still in place there where they have to actually get, for all intents purposes, a, a reference uh, from public health or from the family doc. And uh, that will be open today up at uh, the Dave and the Chuck Arena on Hester Street, just off Upper James. And, of course, the other two clinics in the east end and the west end still going. Uh, doctor, thanks, as always, for the time today. Uh, stay well. Uh, we need you and the other folks up there on the front line to keep us informed and to keep us uh, going in this battle. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. Bye for now. Bye. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are pleased to welcome to the program the Premier for the province of Ontario. Uh, Premier Doug Ford joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Mr. Premier, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Bill. Uh, right off the bat, I want to ask you about uh, the, the comments that were made a couple of days ago by, uh, by President Trump about possibly opening up uh, the border once again to uh, to just general traffic, uh, and uh, both you and the prime minister were pretty adamant about that. This is, uh, as as you said yesterday, uh, not the time to let up. No, it's not. And uh, as as much as we all love our, our neighbors to the south of us, uh, I'm just asking them stay at home. Uh, please don't cross the border, and uh, we'll we'll have time for that in in, uh, in the future. But right right now, we have to lock down our borders. And if there's one thing we probably could have done better as a as a province, as a country, and municipalities right across the board, uh, we're we're such a welcoming country, and we'll always be that way. And we always have our arms uh, open for for people to come here. And uh, but I, I think we we could have. And this is no slight against anyone because I'm a, a big fan and big supporter of what the federal government's doing. But as I, I've mentioned, we we should have shut down our, our borders uh, sooner. And we should have better screening at uh, our airports, uh, especially with uh, uh, everyone coming back from abroad. We had over a million people come back from abroad, and there was, uh, I believe, inefficient screening uh, at the airports. And, and, which puts us in the position that we're at now, right? and, and, and we're we are unfortunately having to be reactive here. You're right. I mean, there's a lot of things we probably could have, should have done, but your job, of course, as, as a political leader is to say, okay, this, here's where we are now. How are we going to fix this? And uh, and your government's made a lot of daily moves, really, to try to catch up on this. And there's a couple of things. Uh, I know your time's limited, Mr. Premier, so I want to talk about a couple of things that I know you've been uh, very concerned about over the last little while. One of them, of course, is testing, as you've mentioned. Uh, I know you've been you've been very disappointed in the number of tests. It has increased over the last couple of days, but uh, and just the other day you mentioned that we're up to about nine thousand right now. But we have capacity for a lot more. What yeah. is slowing the process down? Well, uh, in the, in the past, it was always uh, we didn't have reagent or, or we didn't have the uh, enough assessment sites. But everything's up and going now. Uh, they they promised me that. Uh, as of yesterday, they had uh, 8,000 tests, and uh, they kept that promise. They're going to be uh, having over 8,000 tests uh, every single day. They're going to bump that up to 14,000 tests. And uh, I'm, I'm the first to admit, uh, Bill, I'm, I'm not a medical expert by any means. Uh, I rely on our great uh, command table, the COVID-19 command table. We have some of the brightest uh, health minds around that table, uh, we have a, a great uh, uh, chief medical officer of health, and and I really rely on uh, 
their advice uh, day in and day out. Uh, I guess my frustration was that, uh, again, you look anywhere in the world, uh, the areas and the regions that uh, did uh, uh, testing in, in large volumes, they seem to be getting ahead of it. Mm-hmm. And saying all that, uh, uh, we were able to uh, review uh, some some modeling, and I've always said to the people, I'll be transparent. As soon as I see it, they'll see it. So today I'm, I'm asking the uh, command table to go out there as soon as possible. I don't know if they can do it on the weekend, but they'll go out there Monday. And I, it, it's looking better. I, I don't want to say it's looking good, but uh, because of the hard work of the 14.5 million people in, in the province and everyone working together and, and uh, listening to the protocol, the chief medical officer, uh, the public spread uh, looks positive. Uh, where I say there's there's uh, an inferno happening right now, and we're putting all resources we have into the the long term care, mm-hmm. uh, we have to protect uh, the most vulnerable people, and we need that iron ring around long term care. And we're putting some of the brightest minds when it comes to disease control uh, right across this province to. To make sure we we support the the people at long term care and and the frontline healthcare workers that work there. I know that you had a, a, a front. I guess all intents and purposes, kind of a, a phone conference with the prime minister and other premiers last night. Uh, my understanding, uh, premier, is that uh, that long term care was actually one of the main topics of responsibility uh, and concern by all of the premiers, and certainly the prime minister and you mentioned this yesterday in your daily briefings. Is is there a new strategy that you can adopt here? Are there things that you can do to tweak the the protocol to try to to create a, a safer environment for those long term care facilities? Uh, there, there is, uh, Bill, and, and uh, it's really going on aggressive testing for uh, residents and for people that are working there, making sure that uh, the healthcare workers are only working in, in one location, uh, making sure that we transfer uh, people from the hospitals because we're, we're in pretty good shape right now uh, in the hospitals and transferring a lot of the acute care uh, staff over to long-term care and uh, make sure that we uh, manage it uh, as, uh, to the best of our ability. It's all hands on deck. We're throwing every resource we possibly can. I won't spare a penny to make sure that the people's health and well-being in this province, and especially the long-term care, uh, we put in another $243 million into emergency funding, and uh, we're going to continue uh, making sure we we surround uh, long-term care with uh, the expertise that we we have here in in Ontario, and uh, Bill, it affects everyone. Uh, everyone has a friend, a cousin, a brother, uh, an uncle or aunt that that uh, knows someone or has a loved one in long-term care, and we're going to do uh, everything we can to support them, uh, myself included. Uh, my mother-in-law's in there, and it's it's terrifying. It's heartbreaking watching my wife go to the window. And talk to her through the window. It's in other families too. Uh, the pain uh, uh, that, that's happening within families is uh, it's heart wrenching. How much sway can you have over an industry like that? I mean, some of these buildings are, are municipally owned, etc. But off of them, many of them, of course, premier are, are privately run. And, and the, the idea about double shifting is, is one of the main concerns. It's not the major reason, but it is one of the main reasons, of course, about the, how the virus gets spread from person to person. 
and, and that's low wages or not enough hours. I mean, we've talked to people that work in those homes, and they say that that's a consistent problem through the industry. Uh, yeah. do you, what you're talking about now are short-term solutions, but are you, do you have an eye towards long-term solutions, too, to do, to do something at, even at the other end of this to try to maintain, the, the uh, I guess, living wages for people so that they don't have to go from place to place and, and job to job? Yes, we, we do, actually, and, and Bill, you're right. 80% of them, uh, long-term care homes, are privately uh, privately run. Uh, out of the 626 uh, long-term care homes, there's 114 as of yesterday that have been infected, and that's roughly about 18%. And then we can't forget about the retirement homes as well. We have an excess of over 500 uh, retirement homes, and 34 of them are infected, so roughly about 5%. And uh, we, we have to just focus on, on that. My, you know, we, we have to help the frontline healthcare workers and, and bump up their, their wages, and our government's going to do that with the support of the, the federal uh, government as well. These people are, are going into work day after day putting uh, their life in harm's way, and the pressure on them and the pressure on their, their families is, is absolutely staggering. Uh, I always say, you know, the... the they deserve uh, their wage times 10. I know it may not be realistic, but uh, they're true heroes uh, that are out there. And, and let's not forget about all the other essential uh, services out there as well that are coming in and uh, working long hours. And that's, that's the Ontario spirit. Everyone's stepping up, and we're so, so grateful for our frontline health care workers. One other aspect of this, Premier, and I appreciate your time with us today. Uh, when I talk to some of the people, uh, residents and, or family members of the residents, and, and of course the workers themselves in some of these facilities, uh, they talk about the lack of inspections over the last little while. Uh, it has been reduced significantly over the last uh, couple of years, year and a half or so, uh, because the, the, your government's kind of moved from a, a complaint basis as opposed to just random inspections. Uh, with this tragedy and as you've mentioned half the people who have died from covid are in long-term care facilities uh, which underscores i think the need here was is there an opportunity to revisit that policy and think maybe we need to have more eyes on on these facilities on a more consistent basis i i believe so bill and um you know there was uh, no playbook for for anyone when it came to covid19 anywhere in the world and uh, this pandemic we're, we're seeing it not just in ontario but uh, across the country around the world uh, with long-term care uh, homes. And so I, I think uh, as, as not just as a province, but everywhere around the world, we have to take a different approach when it comes to our uh, long-term care homes and have more in, uh, inspections. And uh, minimum, uh, minimum uh, once a year, uh, we have to be in there inspecting the facilities because a lot of these facilities um, have four patients to a room. And uh, for years, everything worked out. It was it was fine. It reduced the cost for families. Uh, but now, I think we need to revisit uh, revisit that. Well, uh, again, that's long term stuff. But we have to look at short term solutions to get us out of this. As I think you mentioned right off the get go, some months ago. Now, this is a, a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, we've got a long way to go on this. Uh, Premier, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, thank you for the great work that you and your staff are doing to, uh, to get us through this crisis. And uh, hopefully we'll be in touch again soon. Well, Bill, thank you for your leadership. Uh, without yourself and, and people in the media, we wouldn't be able to get the message out about self-isolating and social distancing. So thank you for your leadership, and we look forward to coming on again.
Thanks again, Premier. Premier Doug Ford from the province of Ontario, of course. Uh, interesting to watch the, uh, the the relationship, both federal and provincial, uh, and the interactions between premiers and, and the prime minister in a situation like this. Uh, it's uh, unique, uh, not often seen, as a matter of fact, on the political scene. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Peter, how are you feeling today? Great, thanks. Good, good, good to keep staying healthy, staying isolated. Everything seems to be working out for most of us these days anyway. Talk to me about uh, what we just heard from the Premier here, the, the sense of cooperation that's going on uh, between federal and provincial governments and uh, people that were at each other's throats about six weeks ago, six months ago even in some cases, uh, are all working together, whether it's Doug Ford or Jason Kenney, wherever the, 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 the dividing lines were at one time. They seem to have set all that stuff aside now to try to battle this thing. Yeah, for the most part, maybe Jason Kenney's a bit of an outlier, but yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, most of the, I mean, I think uh, our political leaders recognize uh, what their citizens want from them. Uh, they want them to work to solve the problem, and I think they realize that if they break that common front, I mean, they ask questions of one another. We saw today uh, the premier, uh, you know, somewhat underhandedly, maybe not underhandedly, but asking, you know, maybe the federal government should have acted faster. In hindsight's twenty twenty, but. You know, so the criticisms persist, but in ways that are generally uh, constructive, uh, I would say, rather than destructive. But again, with the idea that if one did come out and begin criticizing uh, other governments, uh, citizens would be saying, well, there'll be time for that later, but now we actually want you to solve the problem. And in a federation like Canada, where you have a very decentralized public health infrastructure, it becomes even more crucial that information sharing happens uh, between the provinces uh, and between the provinces and the federal government. And again, when we get out to the other side of this, we may say that Part of the reason for the cooperation uh, in this instance and the very constructive tone was uh, that ultimately the infrastructure actually wasn't that good between the provinces. And we might want to think in the future about better ways to share information and expertise or even uh, you know areas where there was an excess of supply of necessary equipment or not. Is there a way that that can be moved more efficiently? Yeah, those those are going to be contrarian arguments that are going to come up at some point in the future, aren't they, Peter? About who was provo- you know who was prepared, who wasn't. Uh, you know, health is supposed to be a provincial responsibility. What were you doing? Well, what were you guys doing? How the- and on and on it goes. And, and and I'm sure we're going to get back into the mud at some point when that debate starts to happen. But this is not the time or the place for it. No, and I mean it's not always the mud either. I mean these are important questions to ask. Yeah. I mean just like today, I think uh, as we get deeper into this crisis. And people have a sense that our politicians are, are uh, acting and uh, trying to solve this problem. We begin to have a bit more openness to ask questions, uh, like you asked the Premier, for instance, about the inspections in these homes. And, uh, you know, that is a, an issue coming out of this where there's going to be some political responsibility, either lying with him or with the Wynn government, or I don't know how far back we go, about sort of the deregulation or the lack of uh, supervision uh, of inspections. I mean, we've seen a similar set of questions uh, in the area of workplace inspections when we see mm-hmm. those deaths, uh, you know, in sort of the food packing sector and so on in Toronto. So, I mean, I think, you know, those questions are beginning to come a bit more to the fore. People feel a bit more willing to ask political questions, but it's still always tempered with the idea that we trust uh, our leaders in the moment, but that they're nevertheless accountable to us. And I think we're beginning to prepare some questions that we'll be asking to them, uh, asking of them as we get out the other side, you know, whether it's around inspections in care homes, uh, should we have been faster in limiting the ability of workers to move between these homes? Uh, you know, why didn't we do that? Were we not willing to compensate them? Uh, you know, do we, we talk about the heroes uh, working at the grocery stores? How come we didn't think they were worth $15 an hour two years ago? Yeah. So, you know, those, I think those questions are fair questions, and they'll come to the fore 
uh, and to ask them isn't to uh, question the competence or the devotion of our of our leaders uh, in this moment in trying to get us through this. Peter, what are the chances of, of a sea change in policy with some of these things? And you're absolutely right. The, 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 the you know, inspection of, of long-term care facilities and, and facilities like that uh, has been a concern for the longest time. And we've heard stories about you know, abuse and a number of other things. So it, it's, you know, that's something that needs to be done. Uh, you mentioned the living wage. I mean, just about every government, uh, including the federal government, said, well, we can't afford to do that right now. Well, they're doing it now. Essentially, they've adopted a living wage policy. They just haven't called it that at this stage. Is is there going to be a possibility or, or probability that some of these governments at the end of this are going to say, yeah, maybe we were wrong, maybe these are policies that we should maintain as we go forward? Uh, maybe. Uh, I mean, I think that's that's going to be the point of politics. I mean, yeah. when, when we come out of a, a situation, I don't know where we say get injured, and we'll say, okay, we won't do what we did to cause that injury, but then, you know, a few weeks later, uh, you know, it takes, it takes time and effort to prevent that, and we get sloppy again. And so, you know, around things like public health, I think coming out of this uh, this pandemic, also questions of long-term care, uh, pay for, uh, you know, PSWs and care facilities, there will be a push to say, yeah, we have to change the way we do things. Um, but there will also be a temptation to say, yes, but we want to save money <laughs> at the same time. Mm-hmm, there will be yeah. so many... I mean, we see the city, uh, you know, cities around the province saying, well, we're, you know, we're so deep in the hole, we're going to need relief from the province and the federal government. So there will be a lot of uh, lot of things competing for scarce resources, and it's easy then to, to quickly forget uh, forget these things. So a lot will be based on, uh, you know, the politics coming out of it. Will we see uh, a return to the idea that no one wants to pay taxes and that uh, the point of government is to get out of our way? Or are we going to say, no, actually, we will have to pay more taxes because... You know, there's a lot of things, a bit like fire insurance, you know, you pay your fire insurance, uh, there was, your house didn't burn this year, oh, I wasted that money. You know, there's a lot of things around public <laughs> health and prevention where it's a similar thing, that you build excess capacity and it looks like waste most years, but then in, in a situation where you actually need that capacity, you have it uh, and you're thankful for it. So, you know, part of it will be the politics. Do we, do we think the point of government is to have no uh, kind of capacity for rainy days, nothing put away, no, no, no preparation for these moments, or... Uh, are we willing to to pay for that and, and not see it as waste? Peter Graf at McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, stay well. We'll talk again soon. Sure thing. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the major concerns as we uh, battle COVID-19, and uh, it's it's an ongoing concern, as we've talked about with Dr. Richardson and other guests and the Premier just a few minutes ago, uh, we got a long way to go in this battle. And uh, one of the uh, the elements, one of the tools that our frontline workers are going to need and continue to need are the uh, personal protection uh, equipments that we've talked about, and that goes face masks, gloves, uh, gowns, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a concern initially uh, when we started to battle the COVID-19, that uh, the supply was just not there. Uh, we didn't have the volume. There were people that were without. And it's, uh, well, it's going to be a concern going forward. The federal government has made some uh, moves, though, in the last couple of weeks to try to ensure that there is going to be a supply. And uh, to that end, we are so pleased to welcome to the program the Minister of Public Services and Procurement, the Honorable Anita Anand, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Minister, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could be with us today. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about the work that you and, and your staff have done over the last uh, few weeks, especially, Minister, about about maintaining a steady supply. Supply chain uh, is something that we've heard an awful lot about. And uh, I, I know that you've made some st- some pretty strategic moves over the last little while to ensure that that's going to be there. Exactly. We are aggressively procuring in the global marketplace, recognizing the risks 
posed by fragile supply chains, as you mentioned, the fluidity of the current situation, and extremely high global demand. What we've done is set up an A to Z procurement approach to bring in supplies from international organizations and countries such as China, but also to make sure that domestic companies have retools. And in that regard, uh, we are seeing regular shipments arriving with significant quantities of personal protective equipment, including to date we have received over 17.5 million surgical masks, around 2 million N95 masks, um, which are continually ordered as a priority, um, and those have been delivered to Canada, when, and they're getting out to the provinces. Uh, to date, we've received more than 14 million pairs of medical gloves, and we're also helping to bring provinces back orders that they have made directly, whether it's from uh, Ontario, Nova Scotia, Quebec. All of those provinces have put uh, cargo on our flights so far. Uh, so that's on the international front, and I mentioned domestic retooling. We've got a number of Canadian companies that are stepping up in our effort to battle COVID-19, whether it's Stanfields on gowns, Irving Oil on hand sanitizer, Thornhill Medical on ventilators, Spartan on test kits, Medicom on masks, and even a Hamilton. A Hamilton uh, company also has... Um, come forward, Mariner Endosurgery, um, which was identified through our buy and sell website. Uh, we have signed a contract with them for approximately tens of thousands of liters of hand sanitizer supplied um, by them. And so it's really an all-out effort, Team Canada effort, to make sure that we get personal protective equipment out to frontline healthcare workers. Mr. Back in the, in the early stages of, of, of this uh, engagement with COVID-19, uh, there was concern about the consistency of the supply chain from China, and I, probably simply because of demand. Uh, are you more confident about that now? Because I know you've struck some, some private and public uh, partnership deals with, the, with that, uh, that part of the, uh, the delivery chain. It's a very good question, Bill. I'm glad you asked it because you are right that the demand is incredibly high. And what that has necessitated for us is that we have a team on the ground in China to make sure that from start to finish, we are watching our procurement very carefully. So Ambassador Dominic Barton, who is wonderfully um, connected with the bureaucratic channels as well as the industry in China, has assembled a very strong team. In addition, we have Deloitte Canada and Bellore Canada assisting on the ground, Deloitte on the paperwork and Bellore on making sure the goods are getting to warehouse are, have been wonderful, as well as making sure that the goods get back to Canada. And in that respect, CargoJet and Air Canada have both really stepped up to make sure we're getting our goods back here to Canada. And I will say that one of the warehouses is uh, in the Hamilton area, and mm-hmm. so the the shipments are often unloaded at that warehouse and are inspected there before they're shipped out to provinces and territories. 
I'm glad you talked about the uh, the, the the national uh, uh, engagement that's going on here, because there was a self-reliance, I think, or, or, or on, on the international product for the longest time. Uh, and, and, of course, you get shocked when that starts to happen. I mean, we had the, and of course, the Trump thing from a couple of weeks ago with 3M, uh, which was resolved by your government rather quickly, which is good news. Uh, we've heard stories about some of the shipments that were supposedly due for Canada, uh, almost hijacked by other countries uh, because of the the, the, the the huge demand that's going on here. It sounds as if a lot of that has been settled now. But the good news story, I suppose, is, as you say, the number of Canadian companies that have, have changed now and said, look, we can help too, and we're supplying. Is there an anticipation, Minister, that those companies on this side of the border are going to maintain uh, that supply chain going forward? This is this is a problem that's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, you know, there could be a second wave. Uh, we don't know what's on the horizon right now. And uh, if there's a lesson learned here, maybe it's that we need to be more self-reliant when it comes to, to the, uh, the, the development of and, of course, the supply of PPE. Well, listen, you put your finger right on the crucial issue we are working with our international partners, but the key here is to build up domestic capacity. And the contracts that we are seeing are both short and long term to make sure that our capacity to build up our supplies of personal protective equipment can last into the long term. This is clear, for example, in regards to our relationship with Medicom in Montreal for the production of surgical masks and N95 masks. I will say that this is the success story of the current pandemic as it relates to the acquisition of PPE, the continual way in which businesses across the country have stepped up. Um, we have a website, buyandsell.gc.ca, and over 22,000 businesses from across the country and internationally have registered on that website. And we have been able to source things from that website, contracts from that website, like the one that I just mentioned from Hamilton, Mariner Endosurgery, as well as millions of nitrile gloves from Geometric Energy out of Calgary from that website. So again, whether we're talking about Stanfields in Nova Scotia producing gowns, um, Bauer in Montreal on face shields, hand sanitizer from Fluid Energy in Alberta, the list goes on about Canadian businesses stepping up coming forward and lending a hand in this Team Canada effort. Well, and uh, a lot of private sector individuals that uh, I find very entertaining, and we're going to talk with one in just a couple of minutes, uh, who maybe can't do anything about supplying the equipment, but they, they're they doing fundraising uh, for the purchase of this equipment. I mean, it's, it's all part of the, the big team effort here. Exactly. It is um, everybody, all hands on deck, really stepping up to make sure that Canada is well prepared in the short and the long term. And I will say that while on a day-to-day level we are purchasing requests that have come in from the provinces and territories, we are also planning for the long term. And so we are being incredibly proactive and dynamic in our procurement approach. And in terms of that approach, we are considering the importance of diversity in the supply chain all along. Both international and domestic chains are very, uh, very important. Um, 
And we have to remember that we have volunteers coming up to the plate. Um, we have uh, Haley Wickenheiser and her group coming up, and our MP from Milton, Adam Vancouverden, who has been very helpful in um, the effort that Haley Wickenheiser has put forward um, with her group, um, stepping up for our community. So it's really, really incredible um, the way in which conquering cancer has been, uh, c- conquering COVID has been front and center. Well, uh, it's uh, it's gratifying to know that that supply chain is going to be maintained, obviously, because the need is great, as uh, we've talked about. And I know the, com- the conversation the Prime Minister had with the Premiers last night about long-term care facilities and the need for equipment there uh, just exacerbates this. But uh, it sounds as if uh, you and your ministry and your staff are, are, are making sure that that supply chain is there. Minister, thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon as we get down the road here. Anytime, Bill. would be more than happy to come back. Take care. Thanks so much. That's uh, Minister, of course, of Public Services and uh, Procurement, Anita Anand, uh, with some good news about supply chain. Uh, more good news about supply chain, and it's local. And we like to highlight this on the program. As uh, the minister was just saying, there are some great success stories and great stories about people that are stepping up uh, to try to help out as best they can. And uh, the Rotary Club of Hamilton is doing just that with a donation of PPEs and masks to frontline workers. Heather Burroughs is the president of the Rotary Club of Hamilton and joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Heather, thank you for the time. Great you could join us today. Good morning. Thank you, Bill, for having me. i got to tell you right up front, I'm not surprised at all because I don't think there's anybody more dedicated to community than Rotary. And you guys are uh, involved in so many different projects here. Talk to us about uh, how you came about to, with this, uh, this, uh, this donation of uh, very, very much needed PPE. Well, obviously, you know, the foundation of Rotary is that uh, we like to help our local communities, you know, obviously locally, but internationally, but we knew we could have a greater impact locally right now with this COVID crisis that we're in. So we, you know, stepped up and sort of brainstormed on what we could do that could have an immediate impact in our community. And obviously, PPE is um, front and center with everybody. And we knew that um, you know, hospitals and long-term care obviously were the first line that we're looking at PPEs and obviously, uh, you know, are the, the uh, front line that, you know, people think of most when thinking of PPEs. But we knew there were a lot of smaller local residential facilities that were obviously in need of PPE, might not have necessarily had the budget to purchase the amount of PPE that they might need during this long-term crisis. And uh, so we right away thought, well, if we can secure some PPE, then we would love to be able to distribute them locally in our community to some of those smaller residential services. And, and it's a great idea because you guys are, well, you're, you're, you're grassroots. I mean, you members of Rotary are people from this community, so you can relate to this. And uh, and you're right. I mean, we talk about this in a generic sense of hospitals need these and, and long-term care facilities need these, and they certainly do. But you've identified a couple of places around town here uh, that uh, the St. Leonard Society of Hamilton, Ellen Osler House, and uh, men's residents at the YMCA that uh, maybe don't have that voice as, as, as some of the other larger uh, facilities would. But, uh, but as a as local entity, you understand that, and, and you, that's where these are going to go. This, this is a great, great story, a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we knew, as you said, these, these smaller facilities don't necessarily, number one, have the budget, but not also the access to the supply chain. So, you know, for a little while there, the PPEs were being directed directly to hospitals and long-term care. So these smaller facilities that may have been able to make those purchases at the time didn't necessarily have the access to. So 
we, you know, when we looked at it, you know, St. Leonard Society has been a great supporter of Rotary over the years through their Green Bite program. They support us by providing um, laptops to children at Kathy Weaver School when we do a um, mm-hmm. Christmas lunch every year for there. Um, and through them, they um, informed us of Ellen Osler's need for PPE. Um, and again, those are smaller organizations that don't necessarily have the budget. And uh, we had a former Rotarian, Jim Comerford, who is the president and CEO of the YMCA. And he sure, yeah, about, we know Jim. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he heard about our, uh, our, our purchase of these PPEs and contacted us to let us know that the YMCA was, was in need of PPE. And of course, you know, the YMCA supports so many people in our community that it's just a small thing that the Rotary Club can do to give back to them to help keep their staff and their residents in their in their facilities safe. Well, uh, one of your Rotarians, Adam Oldfield, who's going to join us in just a few minutes on the program, as a matter of fact, with this Tech Talk segment, uh, we talk about that every year, about the work you do, guys do at Kathy Weaver and in, in the community. And uh, we need to beat the drum a little bit more because you guys do so much great stuff in the community, and this is just another example of it. And uh, to know that uh, there's a need there and that you guys have identified the need and found a way to do this, and and uh, this is Rotary. I mean, you, you know, you guys dipped into your own pockets to make this thing happen, and you really to be commended, uh, you and every one of the members for this, Heather, for the great work that, and this great idea. Well, thank you. And, and I have to say, you know, there was not an ounce of hesitation when I brought this to the board because obviously this needs to be a board-supported decision because we are spending some of those, you know, our our uh, dollars raised through fundraising, not only by members but from fundraisers that the community have supported. Yep. So when I brought this forth, there was not an ounce of hesitation. It was absolutely, you know, how can we maximize the amount of dollars that we can spend to get the most that we can get. Um, you know, and we are conscious that, you know, upcoming fundraisers that we had planned in May are going to obviously po- be postponed. So, you know, we want to do as much good that we can right now with the funds that we currently have, knowing that in the future, you know, we will have more fundraisers and, and be able to sur- support our communities in different ways moving forward. But right now, this was absolute priority, and there was not a hesitation at the board level at all in our, our Rotary members, when we informed them of the decision, were absolutely thrilled that we could do this. And obviously, people said, well, what about this home and this place? And, and while we would love to support as many community organizations as we can, obviously, there is a, little, a limit of funds and supplies that we're able to obtain because we aren't, uh, you know, a frontline or a healthcare provider. So, um, you know, we really looked at at um, our community and, and the needs within our community and the folks that have been able to support us in the past that we may now be able to in turn support them and, and their their residents. It's a great story. Heather, thank you so much for this and uh, and thanks uh, as always for your ongoing support with, uh, for this community with uh, you and all the other Rotarians. Uh, stay safe. We'll talk again later. Thank you. You too. Heather Morrow is, of course, president of the Rotary Club of Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.